Happy Resurrection Sunday, everybody. Hopefully you guys are looking forward to a good rest of your Easter Sunday as we worship together, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe go, go have some lunch with some family. Anybody doing that? We're doing that later, later this evening. Our kids have an Easter egg hunt when, when they do that. And, and so they, they put those out there. And I, I got to say, though, th- this I feel like is an important thing to say. And, and it's an important yearly reminder. And that is that friends don't let friends eat peeps. I got to starting off with maybe a little bit of controversy. Why is it that Easter has the worst candy of any holiday? I, I don't know. I mean, Christmas has candy canes, Halloween. I mean, it's candy corn, but still, I mean, it's better than peeps. Valentine's Day, you got chocolate covered candies. I mean, it's like amazing stuff. And then we got peeps. It's like somebody said, ah, we got some you know, leftovers from s'mores this past summer. Throw some sugar on them. You know, they're nice and stale. That, that'll be great. Like, that's, that's, all, that's all we have. That's, that's what we do. I, I don't know. I mean, thank goodness for egg-shaped Reese's peanut butter cups, right? Am I, all right? I, I appreciate that kind of stuff. That, that there's something worth going for when you have the Easter egg hunt. Yeah, so they, so they do this Easter egg hunt, and, and they go out, and they hide them in different places, and it's gotten more difficult as the kids have gotten older, and, and they have fun with that. They still, they still enjoy that, but they always do something that I think is kind of strange. They, they take the candy in, and then they equally distribute it among the kids. You know, um, didn't seem very American to me. I, I don't, <laughs> is that okay to say? I, I don't know. I, I don't understand that. I, I long for the days when things were a little bit more cutthroat. <laughs> I, you, you remember when kids, like on the playground, we played games like Red Rover, Red Rover. You could break your arm playing that. You remember King of the Hill? You know, you weren't really supposed to punch or kick, but you have this high place on the playground or this one spot that you'd have to protect, and whoever could stay there longest, they, they, were, the, they were the king of the hill. So you'd push and shove, and we used to have fun games, you know, when, when we were kids, and then lawyers get involved, and they ruin everything. I had a lawyer tell me this morning I could say that, so, so, it's, so it's okay. I don't, know if, I don't know if you're allowed to play games like that anymore on the playground. It's been a while since I played on the playground with a bunch of other kids. And uh, other than my own. And uh, I, I think King of the Hill, though, that, that game, that was fun. I think it hit its peak in the 90s, in the early 90s, especially because it made the show American Gladiator. And some of you came to Easter Sunday this morning and you said, there's no way there's going to be an American Gladiator reference. But there is. You're, you're welcome. On American Gladiator, you guys remember that some of you are like, I have no clue what you're talking about. American Gladiator was like the peak of all things good. And, and they, had these, they had these amazing competitions between your, your reg, I would say your regular Joe or Jane, um, but they were normally athletes or, or something like that, but against these massive bodybuilders, you know, profession, former professional athletes, football players, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And they had amazing names, these, these contestants that they would go up against, like Gemini, Nitro, Blaze, Diamond. Some of you are like, i got to look that up on YouTube right now. Yes, if it sounds amazing, it's because it was amazing. And they had this game called The Pyramid, and this is, this is it. And it was amazing. It was just like King of the Hill. I mean, this was like child, the stuff of childhood dreams. And I remember watching it. It was, it was just, it just amazing stuff that they would have, uh, they would have this on the, on, the, on the TV. You know, we all, we all want to make it to the top of something. Something that we learned early on with our childhood games, you know, competitive, we want to win, we want to accomplish things, we want to have purpose, we want to have meaning. Those are things that we want to seek after uh, in, in our life. We want to be king of the hill, kind of have our, our, our own established little kingdom. Races to the top are normal. It's something that we are wired to want within our lives. I, I'm, I'm pretty competitive myself. I, I, some of you know that about me. Some of you have seen me uh, play volleyball regularly once a week. I mean, I'm always keeping track of stuff when I play volleyball. I pick somebody on the other side. I may have mentioned this before. I pick somebody on the other side of the court 
on the other side of the net. And, and I compete against them. So whoever their best player is, I try to keep track of how many good plays they have versus how many good plays I have. So I play a game within the game. I mean, it's just, that's just how I am. I'm, I'm competitive. I always want to win when I play golf. Like, I, I'm not nearly as good as I want to be, but I always think that I can get better and put more good shots together. I'm always trying to do that thing. When it comes to my stuff, you know, establishing my own kingdom, like, I, I don't want anybody to touch my stuff. I want to keep it nice. I want it, to be, I want it to be good. You know, when it comes to my kids, I want them to be the best. Is that okay for me to say? You know, watch them out on the sport field or something like the sport field. That was a... <laughs> hmm, competition. All right. On the sport field, and, uh, and I want them to be better than all the other kids out, out there. I do. I want, them, I want them to compete. I want them to do, to do well. Whether it comes to my house or my relationships or my hobbies, you know, my own little world, I want that own, my own little kingdom to be exactly the way that I want it to be. I want it to be the best it possibly can so I can have the best life experience that I, that I want. At least we make an attempt. Some of us are maybe more successful than others, depending on how we define success. But there's one truth that always remains the same no matter how hard we strive to be at the top. And that is this. We are always dethroned from our own kingdoms. Every single time. No matter how hard we strive and, um, and, and go after it, we, we always come up short. Even if we are the most successful we possibly can be, we still can't take any of it with us. It still doesn't last. Even our legacies fade at some point down, down the road. So, so then we move on to that. Okay, what's a bigger, broader purpose that I can get behind? Maybe, uh, maybe something beyond myself. Or maybe we don't even realize that we do this. Maybe it's not that intentional. Sometimes we make our family our kingdom. You know, our kids are kingdom. We talked about it a little bit. Our spouse, our kingdom. Maybe there, there are people in our life that we let kind of direct us and control us. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's our hobbies. Maybe it's something that we really want to Maybe it's pick, picking up shells on the beach. Uh, maybe it's uh, addiction. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's something else that, that we've given over and kind of that has become our entire world, what we put all our time and, and uh, effort into. I mean, that's, that's life. I mean, there's a constant choice. There's a constant battle for us to, to make good choices and choose to what we put our time and effort and resources and ability and talent into. They're kingdoms that we're building. And when we realize that our lives are in service of something that's greater and bigger than beyond ourselves, then we start to ask the questions in our souls, what should my life be in service of? I mean, we all want a kingdom, but not everyone is willing to admit that our own kingdom isn't enough. There is one, though, that is more than enough, only it doesn't come from the usual suspects. And on Resurrection Sunday, we rightly focus on and celebrate the fact that Jesus has resurrected from the, de- from the dead. That, that he does so, that, so that we might be saved from our sins, be reconciled and redeemed back to God. And so we look at Jesus and we think of him as Savior, just as we should. But Easter isn't just about Jesus becoming our Savior. It's also about Jesus becoming our King and ushering in the kingdom of God. In fact, that's why Jesus lived. That's why we don't just skip from Christmas to Easter and have nothing in between. Jesus lived because he's establishing the kingdom of God, and it's his coronation. It's the beginning of his reign as our king. Jesus lived to establish the culmination of God's reign, and his death, burial, and resurrection is the coronation of him becoming our Lord and king. This is to bring the character and nature of God's presence to a broken world that is far from him. Jesus, just as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus first started preaching in public, he would say, this is from Mark chapter 1, verse, verse 15, the time has come, 
Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And this is the theme, the overarching theme throughout all of Jesus' life and teachings. This is what he's ushering in. This is what he's doing. He's bringing about the kingdom of God. And maybe you've heard that phrase before and you've read through it in scripture, you've heard kingdom of God, or maybe you've even heard kingdom of heaven, and you, you've read that and you think, oh, that, that's a future reality. I and mean, that's something that we're saved for, right? We just kind of hang out and wait with each other until we get to heaven. So that's something that we look forward to then. But it's not about that. That's part of it. But it's also about the then and there and the here and now. Listen to what Jesus says in the hours that's leading up to his false imprisonment, torture, and execution. This comes from Matthew chapter 26, and this is when people are bringing false witnesses. They're coming to the priests. They're coming to the, the rulers of, of uh, the, religious, um, the, the, the religious rulers, the Sanhedrin, and they're coming and they're bringing false witnesses to try to get rid of Jesus. And, and Jesus is remaining silent through all of this. Then the high priest finally says to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you've said so. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And they understood what Jesus meant because it's at that point that they accuse him of blasphemy and say, all right, it's time to execute him. Like this is the straw that breaks the final back because the final straw that breaks the camel's back because Jesus has now claimed to be just like God, to be in a position of ruling just like God. Later on in Matthew chapter uh, 27, Jesus is standing before Pilate in verse 11. We read that as Jesus was standing before him, uh, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. So he's acknowledging this. Hey, this is, yeah, this is, this is a right claim about who I am and what I'm doing. And why were these false charges brought up against Jesus? Why was this the straw that broke the camel ba camel's back? Because Jesus was threatening the power and the authority of the kingdoms that men had built up to that point. He was threatening the religious authority and control that the people at that time had over the nation of Israel. How ironic that they simply served ultimate, ultimately to illustrate why the kingdoms we build pale in comparison to God's kingdom, because their kingdom isn't around anymore. Earthly kingdoms are all about borders and the economy and taxes and commerce and military might and subjugation. Kings and queens or insert whatever modern term for nobility that you want to for the ruling class are the rulers and they establish their dominion through military and monetary strength. They also always fail every time throughout all of human history. And yet the kingdom of God doesn't use or need any of that. The whole world is God's. He needs no borders, he needs no walls, he needs no taxes, uh, he needs no castles or moats, even though those are really cool. Everything in the world was made by him, through him, and for him. He doesn't need a military to back him up. And his, and his kingdom continues to grow throughout all of human history despite any odds stacked against it or ever, any effort to take it down. It's because God's kingdom is about the authority and character of our creator and the life that we were created to enjoy with him. And God's kingdom is established in the righteousness and the love and self-sacrifice of Jesus. So as Jesus, was teaching, as Jesus was teaching, he would say things like, in my kingdom, the outcast will have a place at the table. The first will be last and the last will be first. We practice forgiveness instead of condemnation. We value generosity over greed. All of these opposites, we love and we do not hate. We are not apathetic to others. We seek unity instead of division. All of these things that kingdoms of this world do not seek after 
and do not put effort towards. But in order for us to live within God's kingdom, we are given the choice to decide what kingdom we're going to live for in our lives, what greater purpose we're going to live in service for. Is it going to be the kingdoms of this world? Is it going to be the kingdoms of our own life? Or is it going to be in the, in the, in the kingdom of God, whose authority over our lives needs and deserves recognition? See, we all want to be saved. And, and that's the thing we look forward to at Easter. You know, Jesus is our Savior, but not everybody wants, wants a king. And Jesus is our king as well. We've been burned before by rulers. This is why we, we kind of shy, shy away from that. We've been burned before by rulers. People are things we've put our trust or hope in. People that have had authority over us. Systems that have had authority over us. I mean, those haven't been perfect. And so somewhere along the lines, we've been burned by those things. And so we've seen absolute power corrupt absolutely. We've seen Christians behaving badly. We've seen some things in the Bible that are expectations that maybe we don't agree with or we just don't want to have a part of our, our lives. We'd love the benefits by association when it seems convenient. Yeah, it'd be great to be saved. That, that'd be great. But the eventuality, uh, but that eventuality becomes a pretty shaky foundation when Jesus isn't our king as well. But this is why God's kingdom is so significant. It's not built on any of those things that don't work. And it's not contingent upon how other people are living or acting. It's contingent upon God. And it's contingent upon what Jesus has done on the cross and through the empty tomb. It's on a foundation of righteousness with a cornerstone of love that's defined by self-sacrifice that Jesus models for us. God makes things right for all of creation at Easter. That's what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. He does this in the most significant way possible by taking the burden upon himself rather than leaving humanity to suffer the consequences and figure it out for ourselves. God doesn't expect us to come meet him. He comes and meets us through Jesus. And in the kingdom of God, sin, guilt, shame, evil, power, lust, wealth, those are all exchanged for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness. Even the way in which Jesus becomes king leading up to his crucifixion, it contrasts with how the kingdoms of this world feel like we should celebrate these things and what gives them power and meaning. While the way that Jesus was treated in the hours leading up to his execution was meant to be a mockery of him, it ends up re revealing the futility and temporary nature of our own kingdoms versus the timeless principles of God's reign. So let me take you just, I just want to give you a picture really quickly of the contrast between how Caesar was crowned and his coronation as procession and what happened to Jesus as he, as he is being led to the cross. When Caesar was crowned as king, the praetorian guard would surround him, and they would give him a 6,000-person man honor guard to celebrate who he is as king. And Caesar would be brought into the middle of that gathering. On that night that Jesus was, was betrayed, he was brought to the praetorium in Jerusalem, and the whole company of soldiers gathered there around him to surround them to guard him. See that contrast. The crown and scepter and robe that Caesar is given, he's given this robe, it's placed on him, he's given this golden olive wreath crown, he's given a scepter, uh, and, and he was given the vestments that established him as king. Jesus, he was whipped and beaten and had a robe put on him as well, and a crown too, it was just made of thorns, thorns and he was given a stick to hold just to make fun of him. Caesar was loudly acclaimed as triumphant by the Praetorian Guard. Sarcastically, as the soldiers acclaimed and mocked and paid homage to Jesus, they were making fun of him not, not having any kind of power or authority. 
Caesar was brought through the streets of Rome. He's led by soldiers in the middle of Caesar. Walking behind him was a sacrificial bull whose death and blood would mark Caesar's entrance into the divine pantheon. Because Caesar wasn't just God. Uh, Caesar wasn't just king. He was also viewed as a, as a god. Jesus, his procession began, but instead of a bull, the would-be king and God became the sacrifice. And he was carrying his own instrument of death. When they get... The procession moves to the highest hill in Rome. That's where Caesar was going. That's where he was going to be declared king. By contrast, Jesus was led to a different hill. Caesar would stand before the temple altar. He was offered a drink. Jesus hanging on the cross, he was offered a drink as well. Caesar, he was gathered around. He was surrounded by his second in command, his third in command. They surrounded him as he was declared king. Jesus was surrounded by traitors, thieves, criminals. The crowd would acclaim the inaugurated emperor. And as a divine seal of approval, there'd be a flock of doves, or maybe they would schedule it during a a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse. Uh, You know, that's how Caesar was declared Jesus. He was hanging on a cross. The curtain temple ripped in two. Darkness came over the over the the area. And yet, in the midst of this, there's a Roman centurion who's watching all this, seeing what's happening, observing how Jesus is dying, and instead of instead of acknowledging his devotion to Caesar, who he would have acclaimed as the Son of God, as a Roman centurion, he looks at Jesus and he says, surely, surely this is the Son of God. So what did he see? What, what, what was it? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's something, maybe the Holy Spirit worked in his life in some way for him to recognize, you know, there's something, something different happening here. Because who's still king of the hill? There's no more Caesars. There's no more Roman Empire. But Jesus is still here. The church still exists. Throughout centuries, the gospel has continued to change entire cultures and nations. Jesus went to the hill, he conquered sin and death, and he became Savior and Lord in a way that nobody expected. And nobody realized that this is, the, this is how this needed to happen. This is the way in which we needed this life change in, in our life. And disciples of Jesus and Roman centurions have been declaring him king for centuries. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just something that they believed and thought, you know, maybe you know, Jesus just has the best teaching of anybody in the whole world. It was something they experienced. They saw him. That's, that's where that kind of life change comes from. You don't react that same way without seeing this at work in people's lives. And that's how we continue to see the resurrection today, is we see this in each other as we live as citizens of the kingdom of God, as we acknowledge Jesus as king. Flying in the face of military might, political power, social security, and I'm not talking about the checks you get in the mail. Jesus, is the, in the ultimate form of righteousness and love, establishes the reign of the final king, kingdom that will never fade, it will never falter, because it's not built on, foundation, on temporary foundations or principles. It's built on eternal truths that meet us and correct us deep into our souls more than any kind of external influence could ever matter in in our lives. Because we're human beings that God created for us to enjoy life 
with him. Jesus, our Savior, frees us from sin and death. And Jesus, our King, frees us to live the brand new life that we are offered through him. The resurrection of Jesus is about the restoration, redemption, and reconciliation of all creation. And he is the way, the truth, and the life that we were created for. Jesus is the King, and his power has been established by defeating evil through self-sacrificial love, which covers a multitude of sins. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, he describes this new life we are meant for, and he says this, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, which is a present and future reality that he is referencing. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Maybe you've been living for a kingdom that doesn't have a king. And you just kind of recognized at some point in your life, and you haven't yet, you will at some point, you'll come to it and realize it's kind of empty. It doesn't really fulfill me the way that, that I thought it would. It doesn't really accomplish the things that I was hoping to in my life. I've put my, uh, you know, I've staked my life on, on these things and, and, and they get undercut. They get, they get wiped, a, wiped away. But there's something greater that we are called to as beings who have been created in the image of God. And it's a kingdom that God has established through Jesus becoming Lord and Savior of our lives. And I want to encourage you as, you, as you live your life this week or maybe through the rest of the day, key in on those kingdoms that we're called to live in of, of this world that don't, don't really amount to anything. I mean, who, who are things that are competing in our life for, for our worship and for our service as, as we find purpose and meaning? Identify the earthly kings that are fighting for authority in your life. And then look for how Jesus turns that on his head and, and turns it, turns it up to, upside down and changes that for, for all of us forever. And not just then and there, but in the here and now. I want to encourage you to do that, especially if, if you're a Christian, change that perspective. Look for the kingdom that you are looking for, the kings that are trying to establish authority in your life. If you're not, maybe, maybe you're in a place where you've never made Jesus or acknowledged Jesus as Lord or Savior. I just want to let you know this is a place where you can wrestle with that. You can ask questions about that. You can deal with your doubt. You can deal with your um, uh, skepticism, whatever, whatever that might be. That, that's something that we're more than willing and more than comfortable in walking through and, and trying to model for, uh, for you, to, you know, what it looks like to, to live with Jesus as King and how it changes absolutely everything. It gives us something greater, far greater than anything else that we could find in this world. We'd love to connect with you on that. You can go to velocitychurch.info, as Adria mentioned earlier, and, and just let us know, hey, I'm, I, I just want to have a conversation, grab a, cof- a cup of coffee, whatever that might be. Each of us are invited to play a part in what God is doing in the world through his kingdom. And when we acknowledge that through him, and, and maybe this is something that you've never done, the Bible says that we turn our lives over to Jesus, we're, we're immersed, we're baptized into his name, and, and we join in his resurrection and new life as we start to live as he lived. You know, it's interesting when we talk about baptism in, in Scripture, it, it gives us the exact same picture of what we celebrate on Easter Sunday because we are invited into the same death, burial, and, and, and resurrection. You know, a picture of the same thing that Jesus does, that 
with the consequences of sin and death, and those are, those are washed away. The things that keep us separate from God and experiencing the new life that he wants for us, those things are done with forever. Burying, buried into the water, putting our old life behind us and taking the character of our king by humbling himself to do just that. And as we're raised from the water, just as Jesus is raised from the tomb, the power and authority of our king to wipe away our sin and free us to live a new life is something that we get to, we get to experience and enter into. The question is simply for us, will we recognize Jesus as king? The kingdoms that we build don't last, but God's always will. And he's just waiting for us at the top of the hill. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these moments that we have on the church calendar to pause and reflect deeply on what it means to be people who are saved by your grace and your mercy and the actions that you took to make that happen. That you, you didn't wait in your high place, sit back and let us struggle to figure it out and try to strive and make our way to you, but you come and meet us where we are and that you offer salvation freely. If we simply acknowledge what is the best thing that we could possibly acknowledge in this life, the thing that gives us life. God, we praise you for that. We honor you for that. We thank you for this time of, of Easter where we get to focus on your resurrection and honor you as our Lord and Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.